All right. Look at this. This is great. You guys like it? I do too. I do too. Did you notice that there's like a cathedral ceiling even kind of thing going? All we need is each one of these panels to be a different scene of Jesus's life and we'd be in it. Um, my name is Jeremy, uh, one of the pastors on staff here, and um, really thankful to be here with you this morning and, uh, and to be celebrating what we are celebrating this morning. Before we jump into the text, I did just want to take a moment and pray uh, and acknowledge that as much as this is, you know, this is, we are cresting into summer and there's vacations happening and there's a lot of momentum in the fun direction. Uh, I do just want to also recognize that this has been a week of sadness as well. Uh, and so just to take a moment to pray uh, for the, um, the school uh, in Texas that was Rob Elementary School. I just went blank. Uh, and, and for the teachers and parents and everyone involved with that. And then also take just a brief moment to pause for anything else that you may be carrying in uh, so that we can be ready to receive what Jesus has for us, okay? So, Father, we, we recognize, uh, like we just sang, that we will feast in the house of Zion. We, there is a day coming where there is no more crying, tears, or pain, but that day is not today. Uh, and that day was not this past week. And so we, we recognize that there is, is great pain uh, and hurt in the world, and we don't want to shove that aside. Uh, we don't want to pretend like that doesn't happen. Uh, we don't want to pretend like those things don't happen inside of us all the time. Um, and so we do. We lift up... Um, the, the family and the friends and the teachers and the administration uh, and the city that is surrounding Rob Elementary School. Uh, we pray for the family uh, of, of the shooter uh, and what they must be processing this morning. And for, uh, for everyone who has experienced loss in that, uh, you say that you uh, are a soft place to land, uh, that as they journey through the valley of the shadow of darkness, they cannot fear because you're with them. So would you be? Uh, and for all of the various things and ways, the, the excitement mixed with the dread of the summer that is upon us and everything else that we may be carrying in this morning, we want to hear from you. Uh, we know that if you really made everything and you really made us, then you know exactly how we should tick. And so we pray that you would form us more this morning in exactly the way that we have been made and the, exactly the way that you are drawing us deeper and deeper into Christ-likeness. Uh, so use this word this morning, uh, and would these not be mine, but would they be yours? Uh, for your glory and for the good of uh, this very school and the neighborhoods that surround it, we pray in Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, so... I am, I'm fairly new. We've been here since middle of February. So I need, this is like an interactive sermon illustration introduction. You don't have to say anything out loud, but just kind of um, go with me and answer this question in your own mind. Who are the despised people in and around Creve Hall? Who are the despised people that make up your everyday life. Maybe they're the construction workers that just will not stop 
on Franklin going into town. Uh, maybe it's the, the Creve Hall baseball umpire who made a bad call for your kid's game this week. Uh, maybe it's the bachelorettes in the white cowboy hats that will not part and allow your car to drive down 12 South. Maybe it's the, the former mayor uh, who was caught embezzling taxpayer money. Maybe for you, it's, it's someone personally who has done harm to you. Who is it that you would walk in this morning and if they walked in behind you into church, that you would be very tempted to turn your gaze away? That you would be very tempted to say, I hope they don't come back next week. That's, that's kind of the story that we're entering into today and that, uh, that the, the gospel writer of Luke and Jesus himself is kind of beckoning us into uh, to live into the skin of this man named Zacchaeus and those in the crowds that were watching this thing go down. And what if Jesus was on a preaching tour this morning instead of me? And he was the one standing up here and that person that you despise has walked in and there's that moment where, you know, church ends, there's the benediction, you know, Jesus kind of goes around to the back and he's kind of shaking the hands of everybody as they walk out doing the, doing the good pastor thing. And then you notice that he strikes up a conversation with that very person that you wish wouldn't come back next week. And then you notice that there's a lot of, of hand motions and smiling and they, you, you notice them actually walking out together and even get in the same car. And then you happen to drive by that pizza place that's next to Creve Hall Bagel that I don't know the name of yet because I haven't been to it, but it looks like fun. And you notice that they're sitting at one of those tables inside as you drive by. And you're like, what? They're like the worst person in town. Why? I've been doing my two every aid in kids ministry since we started this thing. Why isn't he bringing me out to the pizza place? Why has he got to bring that guy? Now you've been invited in to the crowds watching this thing go down. We've get, just got a couple of weeks left in this Be Curious series where we've just been looking and zooming in at various interactions with, that Jesus has that typically don't go the way that you'd expect. And so here we go again. Jesus does something wacky and we got to figure out what's going on. Uh, so let's be curious then together to figure out what is Jesus up to? What does that have to say to us today? And even more so, particularly this, with this season that he is bringing our church into, what does this mean for Midtown Creve Hall as we think about this new setting that we find ourselves in? So I believe Adrian's going to come up and read for us Luke 19, 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus. Do I need to get out of the way? I do. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. 
And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The word of our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So this is, this is like the quintessential salvation story. This is the quintessential 180-degree story where you were headed in one direction, and then all of a sudden, Jesus grabs you and picks you up with your feet still walking and then puts you in the other direction completely. Maybe for some of us in this room, that's our stories. We had that trajectory in our life that was going completely the opposite direction of Jesus, and he plucked us out and put us in a completely different place than we ever expected. Or maybe that's not your story, and you're still not even sure exactly who Jesus is and what he has to tell you, if anything, today. You're not sure if you need to have a 180-degree turnaround or any kind of turnaround this morning. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. You've just been a Christian for a long time. You grew up in this thing, and you're just kind of going through the motions this morning. Wherever you may be, there is one key theme that I want you to hone in on this morning, and it's straight out of what Jesus says, and he says it over and over and over again in a variety of places, and it's verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or in Matthew 9, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Or in Luke 5... 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When we forget that that's Jesus' MO, when we forget that that is Jesus' main goal, then did you notice what happened to the crowds? Did you notice what their response when Jesus and Zacchaeus became best buds? They, They were like, I can't believe him. I can't believe Jesus, and I can't believe that other guy. How dare they? And there's this grumble that begins to happen in our hearts when we forget that we are the worst person in the room. There's a grumble that begins to happen in our hearts, and we heap shame then on others because they're the real problem. They are the real sinners in the room, not me. Or maybe you've gotten to a place in your life where you've said, oh gosh, I really am worse than I thought I was. And then you begin to heap that shame back on yourself. How, can I, how dare I? How, I can't believe I would do that. Oh, I can't get out of whatever you may be stuck in. But if Jesus goes to be the guest of sinners, if that is his goal, as he walked on this earth and in a supernatural sense, the way that he still comes in to our hearts, even today, then there's hope for anybody, even guys like Zacchaeus, even guys like me. So the the main question to ask this morning that we're going to kind of look at in two different directions is, have you experienced the hospitality of Jesus? He's a, a lavish party thrower. He loves a good party. He breaks onto the ministry scene with a party. Have you experienced that hospitality? Have you experienced that welcome? Have you experienced that lavish love that just continues to pour on no matter what it is that you bring to the table? In fact, in spite of what you bring to the table. 
And then there's something that happens. There's, a, there's an act two in this story, even as short as it is. Because as you then experience the hospitality of Jesus, then your hospitality changes. Your hospitality to those that are just like you, even though they may be completely different than you. But you know you're on equal footing because that guy's a sinner and I am too. That begins to change the way you interact with people. That begins to change who you invite into your home. That begins to change who you invite into your church. So very briefly, we're going to look at these two points, Jesus's hospitality to us, our hospitality to others. So let's unravel a little bit more about what exactly is going on in this story. Uh, real life real hap- really happened. There is a city called Jericho. It's this beautiful, lush land. Uh, it is most likely that one of Herod's children was in charge of it at this time or just after that time. And so it is one of the, the palatial estates in the cities that surrounded Jerusalem. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, there was a blind guy named Bartimaeus who got healed. That was also in this same train. There's this parade as it is that's sort of marching towards Jerusalem, and Jesus and his followers are marching towards Jerusalem. Ultimately, the next scene in this story, right after this story, is the triumphal entry. So Jesus is just about to crest into Jerusalem, ultimately to head to his death. And so as anyone headed to their death would be, he is massively purposeful with what he does. Every moment of every day has utter intention to it. And so he's just healed this guy. Popularity is buzzing. There's this word on the street that this guy is passing through town. His name is Jesus. He's been doing these miracles. He's been doing them for a while now. And so most likely he's got a pretty big posse coming along with him. That posse is passing through town and somehow, probably in two different directions, Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. For sure, it seems like Jesus' reputation had preceded him. Like there was, there was already a buzz and he's kind of looking down the road like at the, do you guys have a Christmas parade around here? Is that a thing? Uh, okay, so like if you're at a Christmas parade and you like see Santa coming, but he's not there quite yet, and you keep kind of peering down this way, that seems to be some sort of an idea about what it's like, that there's this guy coming, and it's amazing, and I got to get a look at him, because who knows what he could do to me, because he's done all these amazing things for all these people. But it seems like something else is going on here as well. Jesus's reputation may be preceding him, but there is also something going on inside of Zacchaeus that's not due to Jesus's reputation. It seems to be due to Jesus' spirit that is also preceding him. The, the same spirit that hovered over the waters and created everything is the same spirit that makes every one of us into new creations. And that spirit seems to be going ahead of Jesus, wooing Zacchaeus to himself, wooing him into the foolishness of what he's about to do. Zacchaeus is not the most popular guy in town. If you've ever heard this story or seen it on the, the flannel graph over the years, then you're probably aware of that. But to understand a little bit more about why, this is the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. This chief tax collector, identifying marker, job title of his, is the only time this is used. But it essentially is just the two words, tax collector and then arch. Like arch nemesis is your major nemesis. So the arch tax collector is like the major tax collector, seeming to be sort of a manager 
of tax collectors. Tax collectors in this area were not, I mean, you know, tax collectors across the, <laughs> the span of history have not been particularly enjoyed people. But it, even more so in this day because there was something shady going on. Rome was in control of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Jerusalem was not in charge of itself. Jericho was not in charge of itself. It was, it was under Roman control, and like every oppressive regime, they had to get some money to pad their own pockets. And so the way that they did that is they would employ local citizens to become, uh, one commentary I was reading called them tax farmers, and they would, they would, their whole job was just to, to go to every door and say, pay up, sucker. There's, never mind. There's a guy I used to know who had that tattooed on his hand. Um, that was their entire job. So as you can tell, that's not, you know, they probably didn't get a warm welcome and a warm meal at every house that they went to, but very much the opposite. Rome had a baseline of what had to be collected in order to keep them happy. If they were going to make any more than that, they had to upsell. They had to upcharge. They had to make sure that their margins were in the black and not in the red. The way that they would do that is they would just inflate their prices. But the way they would inflate their prices could, be, could vary person to person, tax collector to tax collector. And then like any good pyramid scheme, he's got all these guys under him that are, he's also taking a cut of everything that they're doing. So get in your mind maybe something along the lines of the sheriff of Nottingham, you know, the, the wolf one with the big belly who bumps Friar Tuck all over the place from Robin Hood, uh, or the one that my kids are really enjoying right now, which is uh, King George from Hamilton. You know, okay. Uh, great, hateable characters. The spittle flying out of King George's mouth just makes you hate him all the more. This is what Jericho thought of their tax collectors, let alone the chief of their tax collectors. But Zacchaeus's desire to meet Jesus, aside from all that he brought to the table, aside from his reputation, his desire to, to meet Jesus, and even to turn that phrase, Jesus's desire to meet him prevailed over every bit of that. The way that the text talks about what happened to Zacchaeus was not so much that he was just a little teeny guy and he just like, you know, needed a boost and nobody would help him, but it was more like they were physically edging him out. Like they saw him coming and the crowd got tighter wherever he was. And then he like shifted down a little bit and the crowd got tighter there at that spot. It was intentional what they were trying to do. They hated this guy. Jesus though sees the foolishness of this man and is drawn into him, is drawn towards him and not away from him. Because there's two things, maybe more, but there's two things that you definitely don't do in this context. If you're familiar with the prodigal son story, you don't run. Older men do not run, or it's, it is a sign of shame. You bring shame not only on yourself, but on your family. You also don't climb trees. Even more so. I mean, kids climb trees. A grown man who is one of the top officials in the city does not climb a tree. You ever seen the president climb a tree? 
There's a reason for that. Because there is a glory that follows that person around. And to break that facade just makes, makes you go, what? That's not what that person is supposed to do. That's not how they're supposed to act. But he looks like a fool. And not only does he look like a fool, but as you can imagine, for Jesus to lock eyes with this guy, the, the crowd's eyes not only go to Zacchaeus in the tree, they're also looking at Jesus going, him? Him? Like you've got all these great shiny people lined all along the road and they would all love to talk your ear off and ask you to heal all of their wounds and all of their problems. And you're going to talk to that guy. I see. I see how you are, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't only say hello, but it says that it, it, there's, a, there's an imperative in here that's like a descriptor of Jesus's heart going out towards him. There, he says, I must, I got, we got to hang out today. You may have that friend who you call and say, hey, we've got to spend some time today. Jesus is going towards this guy in a, a massively intentional way. And it, again, in this culture, this isn't like just hanging out with a, a coworker over lunch. To be invited into someone's home was a very intimate thing. It was something that close friends and family did, not anybody who you barely know, especially anybody who you barely know and you definitely don't like. And with the crowd watching, Jesus and Zacchaeus walk into the house, close the door, smoke billows out from the chimney, the smell of cooking meat over the fire begins to permeate the crowd, and they're all just standing there dumbfounded. It's like if you've ever been the unpopular kid sitting at the lunch table by yourself, and then the, one of the popular kids in school comes and sits right next to you. Two things happen in that moment. One, popular kid's status goes down. Two, unpopular kid's status goes up. This dynamic is happening in Jesus' interaction, in Jesus' identification with Zacchaeus. The question to us, based on all that, does Jesus' identification with you make him look better or make him look worse? It's a bit of a trick question, but go with me for a minute. My story is one where for many years I thought, I'm pretty sure there's a God. I'm not totally sure. But if Jesus is real and he really is God and this whole thing is true, he is lucky to have a guy like me on his team. I mean, have you seen this? He is so lucky. And that, that began to shape the way that I walked into every room, that shaped the interactions that I would have. I thought I made him look so good. But what, what encountering the real Jesus did for me is to recognize that I am not a, a, a jewel in Jesus's crown, but I'm, I'm more like a trophy of his grace. Uh, I'm not something that you put in a museum somewhere and look at how great a life this guy lived. But it's more, to, it's more so to say, 
can you even believe this guy gets to be friends with Jesus? So you may have heard this illustration before, but the, the movement, if you read the Apostle Paul and his writings chronologically, there's a move. And that move is the, the first identification that he ever makes of himself is he, he says, uh, I'm, I'm the worst of the apostles. You know, like of the, you know, the 12 or so that are around here, I'm like the worst of those guys. Fast forward about eight years in his discipleship, in his following Jesus and in both his working for Jesus and also Jesus working on him. One of the last letters that he writes to Timothy, his identification changes and it doesn't change for the better. It changes for the worse. I am the chief of sinners. Not just these 12 guys. I am the chief of every one of you reading this letter. I'm worse than every one of you. I'm the worst guy in my family. I'm the worst guy in my friend group. I'm the worst guy at work. On and on and on down the line. Would you believe that deeper discipleship with Jesus looks like you more and more recognizing that you're worse than you thought? Would you believe that growing more and more into the identification of the chief of sinners is actually a sign of health. Not that you're doing something wrong. Zacchaeus got this. Something about the way the spirit was working on him, something about the way that Jesus pursued him, Zacchaeus began to understand this. Because like Zacchaeus, even the most seasoned Christian, if you're really honest with yourself about the week that you've just had, Let's say you're in this room, you're a follower of Jesus. Just think back on the week that you have just had. Think back on the moments that you're proud of. Think on the moments that you're not proud of. We each, every week, come into this room with a laundry list of wrongs. Wrongs done to God, wrongs done to ourselves, wrongs done to each other. This laundry list can lead us to one of two places. It can either be a place of trying to, to push those things away medicate, cope, pretend like they don't exist. As soon as we think about something bad, we flip it and turn it into something good. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Dave. That's what I think. <laughs> uh, preach, yeah. Um, right, but we bring this laundry list every week and Jesus has every reason to say, okay, th- I, I've received your list and denied. You have not, the entire Old Testament is the standard that we are to live to. And then Jesus breaks in and says, yes, there is a standard for you to live to. And guess what? I have been the one who have lived that standard. I'm the one who has lived perfectly all 33 years of my life. And I come into your house and I've got a nine by 12 pan of righteousness. And I want to give it to you. I want you to take that righteousness and eat and enjoy. Take it for yourself. Take my record on you. And then I want to bring the wine of salvation, and I want you to drink deeply of that because not only do you have a perfect record in Christ, but you also have every one of your sins now blotted as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. That, in order for that to be 
real in your life, there has to be a point at which you identify and say, I need that. I need Jesus to come to my house. I need him to give me his righteousness. I need him to take away my sin because in and of myself, I won't do it. I've tried. I tried last week. I'm going to try next week. I'm going to try the week after that. And every week, I'm going to fail. And then not only does he come into our house, not only does he clean that house as it is, but then he also begins to do some renovations. John 14 Jesus says, we will come to him. That is Father, Son, and Spirit. We will come to him and we will make our home with him. And as as the Father, Son, and the Spirit begin to root themselves, root himself in your life, things begin to change internally. And for Zacchaeus, at least in this moment, part of it happened real quick. Because what does he go on to say? As we begin to think about what this change in us begins to look like as it bends out towards others. Zacchaeus stands up. He enjoys this meal of grace that he's just experienced with Jesus. And he goes from being the little guy trying to squeeze through the crowd to see Jesus to the one who stands. It literally says he stood up. There is a dignity now that he has, as he has identified as the chief of sinners, as he has said, I have done wrong, and Jesus, you still want to be my friend. Because that's true, my life now begins to change. I'm going to give away half of my belongings. And he had a lot of stuff. It says he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And then he goes on to essentially quote Exodus 22, which is part of the initial establishing of the way that Israel and the people of Israel were to relate to each other. And it's this idea of restitution. If you steal someone's sheep, you better give them back four. It was almost the top tier. There was kind of like a two-time, there was a three-time, and then there was a four and a five-time kind of tier of sin. And if you do those things, this is what it looks like to make restitution for those. And so he's, he's drawing that into his present day and he's saying, I, I wanna do that. I wanna follow you in that way. And so what, what we're not saying is that to be a trophy of his grace looks like just sitting on a shelf over there and saying, oh, woe is me. I'm just the worst. I'm just gonna be a slug forever. But it is to say, I am, I am changing. I'm changed and I am changing. And that looks like beginning to live into more and more and more of the way that I was created to live. And so this is what what it looks like for Zacchaeus. This isn't what it looks like for everybody. For Zacchaeus, a response to the grace of Jesus looked like he was somebody who was great at making money. And so he bent that greatness at making money out into his neighbor. It would be like if, uh, if Guy Fieri or Bobby Flay or somebody just decided to like come and stay in your guest room. And then every night he's chip chopping, you know, some new thing and, you know, sliding it over your table. I mean, it'd be like the greatest thing ever. Imagine if you never had to think about what was for dinner again. You would be jumping on every meal train that comes through your email. It'd be like, I've got too much food in my fridge. I got to start to give some of this out because it's going to go bad. When Jesus moves in and begins to fill you with grace and fill you with love and fill you with approval, then you can begin to give that same thing away because you're not on the take for it anymore. You don't need it. 
You can give it. So here's my version of that, and then we'll close. I worked at a a YMCA camp growing up. I've mentioned that uh, another time up here before. But the thing that I want to draw out this time is there was, I was really good at it. Just like naturally, I was just very good at it. And it became, I got every trophy that you could imagine in the whole thing. I was like the golden boy of the camp. And I cut my teeth in that in high school. And I just, that was part of what was fueling this. If Jesus is real, mm-hmm, this guy, lucky be on his team. Until Jesus really knocked on my door. Until he, he started to reveal to me that the applause and the approval and the recognition that I was living for was toxic and it was actually killing me and not giving me life. When he showered me with his, when I, literally when I read the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I hadn't even done anything yet. I've been a Christian for like two seconds. But that begins to wash over the human soul to say, if I have the well done already, I don't have to go out and search for it anymore. I don't have to make my work about it. I don't have to make my parenting about it. I don't have to make my friendships about it. Well done. Then that can begin to bend itself out as you begin to give that kind of approval to others because you're not trying to source it from them. How has grace changed you? Or how might grace change you? How could Jesus be drawing in all of your foolishness whatever tree you find yourself in this morning, how could he be drawing you into deeper fellowship with him, not only for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of what he has created you to do? What are you good at? Whatever we're good at, we typically tend to turn inward in and of ourselves, And we tend to then use that as just one more way to get the applause, the approval, the money, the comfort, the fame, whatever that is. What would it look like, this is going to be different for everybody in here, to think, how could I uniquely be used by Jesus as a new creation in Christ, one who has everything I need in him? He lives with me all the time to begin to think, how could I be good at what I'm good at and love being good at it, but do it for the sake of somebody else? Let me take it one step further and then we'll close. What is, what is Midtown Creve Hall really good at? I think in the few months that I've been here, you're great at fellowship. You're great at community. You're great at relationship and warmth and welcome and hospitality and service. Every church runs the risk, though, of turning all of those gifts in on themselves. And it could be a great church, and you could all really enjoy that one to another, The caution of Jesus to us this morning is not to to turn that inside inward towards ourselves, but to think, how do we collectively, as a church, begin to bend what we're, we don't have to be everything, but what are we good at? And how can we uniquely, as new creations in Christ, as a new creation, as a part of his body, collectively together, image him by being uniquely good in this community at whatever he's calling us to be. He has put us here in this space for a reason. He didn't put another church here. He could have. He put Midtown Creve Hall here. What does he want to do with us for those neighbors right down the street? 
What does he want to do for those neighbors down Edmondson Pike? What does he want to do for the, the small neighborhoods of Berry Hill and Abbey Hall and every other little niche and network and neighborhood that covers South Nashville? What could he want to do? It'd be exciting, exciting to see what he does with us. Let's pray. So Father, I pray um, that you would give us great confidence that we do not have to clean up for your blessing. We don't have to pose. We don't have to pretend. You, you know us better than we know us. You know all of our mess even deeper than we know our mess. And yet there's still something about your heart that is drawn into that and not away from that. There's nobody like you. You're amazing. So use us individually Call us into yourself. Help us to, to enjoy and experience your welcome, your rest, even today. And then give us a, a holy imagination for what it could look like for us to bend that out into our workplaces, into our homes, into our neighbors, and as a church community into this city that you have called us to. To witness to the great King Jesus who will return and make all things new. We pray this in Christ.